Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. We are recording. Oh boy, here we are. <laughs> That's that should be the motto of 2020. Oh boy, here we are. Oh boy, here we are. I was sitting out in my backyard this morning, and you know how it is in the fall when those blackbirds start moving. You know, you ever get that? And they start. You can hear them down the road that chirping and whatever. They they're talking, and they started getting closer and closer, and then they were like all above me in the trees and that was sort of creepy sounding and very bird-like. They're getting ready to fly somewhere. I wish I could kind of go with them. I feel that way about the sound of the mowers and the leaf blowers as they gather around me and and bombard me from all sides. See, my neighbors have been amazingly quiet. I feel like they may have gone back to wherever. It's been pretty quiet on my both sides of me after a very raucous summer of screaming children, barking dogs, and leaf blowers. So our street is full, full, full. And usually at this point, it's probably like a 60-40, full-time 60, part-time 40. And there is not a driveway that does not have a car in it. Well, there you go. So I guess we should introduce ourselves before I forget, because I always forget that part. Here we are again. And we have Bill Sutton with us. Hey, Bill. Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And Catherine Georgie Manu. Hey there. Hey, Nat. <laughs> I'm Catherine Manu. I am the co-publisher of the Express News Group and sometimes known as Georgie. And Brendan O'Reilly. Hiya, Brendan. Hi, I'm Brendan O'Reilly. I'm the features editor. And we have Joe Shaw. Hi, I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor. And in my spare time, I go to Annette's house and stand outside and make Blackbird songs. <laughs> because, I know she, because I know she likes it. And I, you know... I like to go the extra mile for my staff. It was very Hitchcockian, I'll tell you that. <laughs> wait, wait, you have, you have spare time, Joe? Yeah, yeah. That, that's, and I'm so socially distant when I do it as well. And my name is Annette Hinkle, and I am the arts and living editor at the Express News Group. You know, we're kind of past Labor Day. We're just approaching fall. Kids are back in school. Our next issue is October 1st. That's impossible. Unbelievable. It's like weirdly, it seems like it's been forever and like a flash of the eye, isn't it? It's like kind of both, yeah. crazy, very crazy. So this week um, we're talking about the restaurant scene and how that's been working out for the restaurants out here. And after a really horrible start, because in March everything was shut down and it looked like it was going to be pretty grim. And the restaurants, a lot of them figured out pretty quickly how to start transitioning to doing takeout which I think helped some of them. And then once the weather got nice, they could resort to outdoor dining, which seems to have been really great for some, not so great for others who don't have the space. And the big question is now what happens going forward now that we're getting into the colder season. So let's talk about that. I think I know like for us early on, we pivoted to trying to do takeout where we felt like it was safe after shelter in place, you know, had kind of moved on. 
and we were slowly reintroducing ourselves to the world. And it was like a nice break from the house and like kind of this really special treat. And we figured out in, we're in Springs in East Hampton pretty quickly, which restaurants were having success with it and which weren't. And it was also this really wonderful way to support a local business, you know, by making sure at least once a week we were ordering food where we could, you know, but then it was like, it was so exciting when outdoor dining was, you know, then allowed. I, I remember Gavin and I went to the 1770 house, which is one of the restaurants that was, you know, poised for outdoor dining. They have beautiful gardens and all these outdoor tables. And I mean, it felt like such an event to get out, right? Like it was like, this is this big moment. I'm sitting at a table and, you know, having cocktails and having this amazing dinner. And it was so special, you know, but at the same time, I was looking around, you know, at this, you know, robust restaurant that was still missing so many seats and you just start doing the math in your head and you're just like, how are these restaurants going to, you know, get through this? And I think that, you know, basically the, the motto has been like, if you can get to the spring and get through the next few months, you know, you'll probably be okay and get on the other side of it. But I think there are probably a number of restaurants that, you know, unfortunately we're just not going to see, be able to survive, um, you know, that kind of hit to the business. It's interesting because I experienced what you're talking about. Uh, Dana and I went to Oakland's for a lobster dinner the other night. And I, rem I looked around, we sat inside, and I looked around and said, oh, it's great. This place is full. Um, that's good to see. Well, full was probably 50% uh, as far as the number of tables that were available. You know, uh, I, I've seen that dining room stacked with tables before everybody was they have it set up perfectly to be everybody be socially distanced so full is really about a 50 percent capacity um and i you start doing the math in your head and you wonder um how restaurants survive and it seems to me that the two ways restaurants survived and are continuing to survive is the outdoor dining uh which is a big part of it especially for fine dining but also being able to make the switch to takeout I think in Mike's story, he talks about the restaurant Smoke and Wolf in East Hampton, which I believe already had takeout at the time and did a fairly robust business, but they switched almost, you know, 100% to take. I believe they did switch 100% to takeout for a long time in the beginning, and they were able to actually have a fairly good summer. Uh, and, and even in the spring, I think they were able to keep their heads above water. So you had to adapt. If you didn't adapt to the circumstances and I think some restaurants maybe were a little slow to do that or haven't been as effective at doing that. And uh, it's going to be a tough, tough fall, especially if we have a, a, a flare up, which, you know, as the days go on, I start to feel a little more optimistic. It's interesting with Smoking Wolf, Arthur talked about how in March he was doing business that was equal to what he would traditionally do in a July. And it's kind of stayed at that you know, steady pace, but of course, Smoke and Wolf was already, you know, a catering and takeout business going into this. And he was able to reduce his staff to just his family. So he was able to continue to do business and feel like he was doing it safely, you know, at the start of all of this. But yeah, I mean, I think that of course there are those restaurants that, you know, just weren't poised to be able to offer, you know, a, a takeout option just by the nature of what they did. 
or have room to to expand to outdoor dining. I mean, the, the restaurants that were lucky had the room to be able to put the tables outside. Some some just didn't. Or the higher end restaurants too. Like you're not going to necessarily do a fifty dollar takeout steak. You know, like you're going to tend toward the pizza and the barbecue and the stuff that and the Chinese food. So some of the higher price point restaurants probably struggled a bit in the beginning because takeout was not is not something that you think about necessarily doing from a, a pretty expensive restaurant. I'm guessing. Although unless they pivoted, because I remember when we were talking to Chef Razi over at 1770, he said that they pivoted immediately to a much more affordable menu out of their tavern. They were doing pizzas that, you know, their burger, they offered all of these things that the 1770 house had traditionally not offered on their menu, like kids, chicken and French fries. Uh, as takeout as a way of, you know, kind of ensuring that they could keep going and he said that they were doing gangbusters takeout business as a result of having that more accessible menu and we also we should talk about the effect on the restaurant workers uh who are clearly being affected by this slowdown as well. And, and a lot of them lost their jobs. Uh, a lot of them are probably making a whole lot less than they're used to making in the summer. Uh, and I feel like the fallout from that is going to start to be felt now um, because I think most people in the summer tend to make enough to get through the winter and they probably didn't do that this summer. And, and that's true of restaurants, but it's also true of the people who work there. One of the most interesting things that I found in the story that Mike Wright did this week on the restaurant industry in the summer of COVID was that we're now seeing uh, restaurant owners who don't actually own the buildings themselves renegotiating with their landlords uh, at a rate that's going to make sense. If you used to pay one rate for a 100-seat restaurant and now that 100-seat restaurant has become a 50-seat restaurant, that landlord can't really expect to get the same amount of rent. So some people might have been at the end of a lease and they're in a great position to negotiate a new one because it's very hard for a landlord to get a new tenant in there right now. Or they might be mid-lease, but they're renegotiating because uh, the landlords know that they have to give some leeway if they want that restaurant to stick around in the future and continue to pay them rent. It's interesting, early on, I actually talked to a number of restaurant managers who said they were struggling to staff once they were able to reopen for outdoor dining and then eventually reduce capacity indoor dining because of those extra unemployment benefits. Because there were people who were just like, you know what, I'm, I'm making enough money and, um, and I don't have to work. And um, you know, I, I think that that had actually a little bit of a negative effect on some restaurant managers who were trying to, you know, create a robust staff. I mean, I saw some restaurants that have outdoor seating in East Hampton, and I'm not going to name names, but they were only open for five, six days a week in August. The only reason you're not open for seven days a week in August, if you have outdoor dining this summer, is if you don't have the staff to do it. But at the same time, you can't blame a, a lot of those staff members when you've got the government, you know, saying, stay home, don't go out, don't take any chances, um, you know, be healthy, it's risky out there, you know, wear your mask, wear your gloves, blah, 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 blah. And at the same time saying, 
no, go back to work and, and work in an industry where you're coming in contact with people, you know, for your entire shift. Am I wrong that if you're offered a job, if you're offered an opportunity to go back and you turn it down, you risk losing your unemployment benefits? I think in a normal time, if you, if you turn down work, it's an issue, but I think pretty much anybody could justify a fear of returning to work with COVID. They could say they have a family member at home or they could have health issues or, you know, I don't, I doubt that the, that the state unemployment was calling up to check people, you know, if turning down jobs. I was going to say, I think that it would be really up to the restaurant manager to report somebody in that case. And that would probably be a case by case basis, depending on the relationship. But going back to what Brendan was saying, I thought it was really interesting. Um, David Lowenberg, who is with, of course, Beacon and Sag Harbor and the Bell and Anchor in um, Noyak, he was saying he believes the restaurants that are really going to get to the other side of this are going to be the ones that, again, of course, can pivot to takeout and get creative with how they structure their in-person dining, but also the ones that have solid, healthy relationships with their landlords. I think he had the best quote of the entire story, which which Mike used to to you know end the story it was, it was half the customers and half the revenue, but double the energy. It was a season for survival, and I, I think that just encapsulates the whole yeah. thing. Well, one of the big things with the restaurant workers is when we had the extra six hundred dollars a week in COVID unemployment, you had people in March and April making over a thousand dollars a week. And those were not people that would normally be earning $1,000 a week. So during that time when that $600 was tacked on, it worked out well for them. And by that time that $600 expired, a lot of them were able to go back to work. So what do we think is going to happen in the fall? Like how, you know, this is the other question going forward. How long can people eat outside? I mean, it sounds like some restaurants are talking about getting portable tents and maybe putting a way to finding a way to put heat in them so they can continue to serve into the fall. But the question is, A, how many of them will be able to do that? And B, are we going to see as much interest in dining out as we have seen lately? Or is it going to go to traditional winter where the customer base really falls off? Has the government talked at all about when and if it's going to increase capacity in the restaurants? Are we waiting to see if, if there's going to be a spike this fall or, or are we waiting, you know, we're waiting indefinitely and we're going to just keep it at 50%. Yeah, it's a great question. And I suspect the governor won't do anything for a little while till we see the fallout of schools reopening first. And if we can, if we can shoulder that without a giant spike in cases, it might uh, embolden the governor to, to start opening things up a, a little more. But certainly at this point and, and heading into the fall, heading into flu season, uh, I don't know that we want to take, we don't want to be, uh, it, it's terrible because I think everybody wants to see the restaurants get back to normal. Yeah. But I think it might be reckless to do that a little too quickly. And nobody wants reckless right now. I think it's, it, New York is a success story. And you don't want to jeopardize that by being reckless and, and impatient about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm knocking on wood as I say this, but, you know, my children have been in school for two weeks um, tomorrow. And, you know, we are, you know, in a remote and in-person learning program in Springs. 
Um, but on the South Fork, we have seen some isolated cases reported out of the schools of a staff member here and a staff member there. Um, but we so far haven't seen the big explosion of cases that I think a lot of people were really nervous about once school was in session. Um, and so I think a lot of us are watching the calendar like, okay, you know, maybe like one more week, maybe two more weeks from now, if like that is sustaining, is that, does that tell us something? I, you know, I don't know. Is that true statewide too? I think the numbers have, I, I, I know there's, there's been cases, but I don't know that there's been any kind of uh, major outbreak of any kind in, in any schools in throughout the state. I don't, I don't know that the governor has reported a, a, a pretty severe uptick. I know the numbers tend to trail a little bit, uh, the reality of what's happening on the ground, but. I'm not sure about the state numbers. I know I was um, on the New York Times webpage this morning and they've got great stats nationwide. And um, I'm always looking at the ticker of how many overall cases in the nation and how many deaths overall. And um, I know that we are seeing nationwide an uptick, um, but I know locally, you know, we're not seeing a big jump, um, but I'm not sure about the state numbers, to be honest with you. I don't think the state numbers have gone up significantly. I, uh, we, we get an update from the governor every day and, and I don't recall seeing anything alarming in any of his reports recently. So, I mean, that's a good, again, uh, this is good. And, and I mean, it's a, it's a step. And, and I think as, as frustrating as it is, the, the enemy here is, is impatience. And, and if you jump ahead, you lose all the, uh, you know, I think the governor has said it, you don't want to lose all of the ground we've gained in this fight. Sometimes the governor just surprises us with those uh, lifting of restrictions. So one day out of the blue, we might just hear that we're going up to 75% uh, in a couple days from now. Uh, he might do it region by region. Like what we did see with restaurant reopenings is that New York City went last because when they did do contact tracing in New York City, they were finding that dining was a big issue there. Here, we don't have that kind of density, so they were able to reopen restaurants at half capacity sooner than they were able to do the same in Manhattan. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Cordoraro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Yeah, the mask wearing is such a big component. I mean, it's interesting. My daughter's in college down in South Carolina, which is a state that has seen quite a bit of COVID, but her college campus has been very, very strict about mask wearing, and they also delayed the moving in of the dorm students who just arrived last week or two weeks ago. They've, they only have um, 10 cases out of 10,000 students. So I'm pretty impressed with that, given how some of the other colleges are not being quite so successful at can't tamping it down. Nice to see Dr. Anthony Fauci take that message to Rand Paul yesterday in the hearing that uh, just debunking a lot of the nonsense that that Rand Paul has been has been pitching and 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 not just debunking it but answering it with real data and real facts and and again it's it's you know it's a broken record but the masks work and and New York is an example of that and and um, 
I just don't, I don't, this is settled science at this point. I don't know why we're even debating it anymore. Well, you know, the earth is flat, right? <laughs> no, well, there's that. Yes. Can I ask you guys a question? Just a personal question. Um, how comfortable are you with the idea of eating indoors right now? I mean, I know, Joe, you just said that, you know, you and Dana enjoyed a nice meal out at Oakland's recently and that you were indoors. Um, how do the rest of you guys feel about eating indoors? I think I'm okay with it. And interestingly enough, we, um, we had like a little appetizer and a glass of wine at the American Hotel a couple of weeks ago. And we were actually joined by um, Airbnb couple who had stayed here with us. And they did not want to sit inside at all because um, they were older, they were in their seventies and the husband had had uh, some, had been dealing with pancreatic cancer. So they were like, no, can we sit outside? I'm like, all right, so we got a table outside. So I think for me, I, I'm okay with it. I and mean, I feel like every place we've been we haven't been too many places inside, but even when we were down in South Carolina, people were, you know, we kept those masks on until we sat down. Like I didn't see anybody roaming around or, you know, if I saw a lot of people like running up to the bar without their masks or things like that, I think I'd be a little more wary. But the couple times that we've eaten out and been inside, it felt like it was pretty roomy and it didn't really bother me. In the past two weeks, I've eaten out uh, where we've actually eaten indoors three times uh, in the North Fork this last weekend. Just recently, we had lunch at the Eastport Luncheonette. And uh, before that, we went out in West Hampton Beach and we ate indoors. And it does feel safe. Like I still feel isolated if it's just uh, my wife and I, or if it's us and a couple other people that we know and are kind of in our pod already. There really are very few tables in the space. You're not bumping into people. Your waiter's wearing a mask. So you, you don't really feel exposed. I mean, maybe if like the people at the table next to me were coughing their lungs out, uh, I'd run out before my food got delivered to the table, but that just wasn't the case. This is the only the second meal I've had indoors since the crisis started, but I didn't feel uncomfortable. And, and I think Brendan's absolutely right. There's enough distance and everybody really is very careful and I've felt as the, the pandemic has evolved, I feel like they've narrowed down the dangerous aspects of being around people. And so much of it, I think, has to do with just face-to-face -face contact with people you don't know. And in a restaurant setting, you do have a little bit of that. But the, as you said, the, the waiters and waitresses are all wearing masks. And I think it's perfectly safe. Do I feel completely safe? No, I, of course, I have a little bit of a hesitation, but I, you know, you got to try and feel normal in a time of crisis like this every once in a while. And it's, it's, I think the risk, the risk is worth it. Let's put it that way. I think it's the bars that make me the most nervous. I think that's where, you know, when people are wandering up to the bar and talking and I, I don't know, I feel like dining, dining while seated at a table and you're not moving around is way safer than a place where people are freely roaming up to a bar. I, I think it's a matter of getting used to it too. I mean, you know, we didn't feel safe going to the, you know, to the grocery store in March. Now we feel a little more safer going in there. I've, I've you know, eaten in restaurants a couple of times, um, you know, and one, one place, and I won't name a name, it was a little too packed. Um, and a little, and people were a little too close, so I didn't feel real comfortable there. But a couple other places are, you know, it's fine. And you just, if you don't feel safe and comfortable, find somewhere else. I feel like they're starting to know more about how things are spread. Do you remember when we first 
this all first happened, we were like leaching all of our groceries <laughs> coming in off, out of the trunk. And I feel like, I feel like we're not really doing that anymore, you know? So in a way we've either gotten more comfortable with it or we're com more comfortable with where New York is. It, it depends. I, I went to get my oil changed today and sitting in the, um, sitting in the waiting room at the, at the car dealership, a guy came in with mask and rubber gloves and I haven't seen anybody wearing rubber gloves in a while, but to him, that's what he needed to feel safe. And well, maybe he had a body he had to get rid of. It could be. He's going to do his own oil change, maybe. Is anybody going out to eat this weekend? What are our plans? Yeah, actually, um, we're not sure where we're going to go yet, um, but we were just talking about how we want to try and enjoy outdoor dining while we still can. Um, so Gavin and I plan to go out to eat on Friday night um, with um, two of our friends that are in our little pod and um, I'm really excited uh, there's so many great restaurants out here we're so fortunate it's also this really amazing time of year for local produce um, that a lot of the local restaurants use so I'm really excited you know that opens up another uh, avenue of conversation though which is I think there's going to be a, a, a long conversation about allowing more outdoor dining more frequently and for maybe to broaden the season, uh, I know uh, Jerry Larson, who's just elected mayor in East Hampton Village, has talked about uh, starting that conversation. But, you know, it, it's something that we haven't had a lot of. Uh, the, the, the towns and the villages out here have kind of not necessarily been all that uh, accommodating to restaurants to allow outdoor dining. And I think that is certainly going to change. And I, just as I think in the city, they're going to have this conversation as well. That's great. I think that that'll be, I think everyone can see how well it can work too. So I, they know, like we've said before, it's like as, as bizarre and horrible as these times are, they are also allowing people to be really creative and how they reinvent themselves. Yeah. I mean, I would love to see more downtowns um, allowing restaurants to have seating, you know, on a main street, you know, like what Southampton tried to do, um, you know, which unfortunately I think was thwarted because of a few bad apples. Um, but, you know, where you shut down a main street and, you know, you're able to expand outdoor dining as a result. Um, I think they did that up in Greenport as well and Patchogue. And, you know, I think more than probably ever before as community members, as, you know, government leaders, we're really concerned about the health of our local businesses and maybe willing to do things that prior to COVID we might have been a lot more restrictive about. Just have to wear our sweaters when we eat outside now because it's getting a little chilly. I like it. I'm cool with that. <laughs> Especially if you're having soup. Yeah. Soup. Or something like that. It's hearty and warm. The soup and the blackbirds. That's kind of a theme. Definitely fallish. So. That's an album title. Soup and the Blackbird by the Decemberist. There we go. I think our work is done here. Oh, with that I heard mom. <laughs> yeah, well, definitely done here, so. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. 
Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts. 